Hi, listeners. It's Vanessa. For years, ParCast has worked tirelessly to bring you an unprecedented look at history's most radical true crime events. Your support has not only allowed us to keep exploring these stories, but has driven us to keep expanding as well. So as a thank you to the ParCast listeners, I am honored to announce the release of our first book, Cults, Inside the World's Most Notorious Groups and Understanding the People Who Joined Them. It's available on July 12th, and you can pre-order it today at parcast.com slash cults. The Branch Davidians, The Ant Hill Kids, Heaven's Gate, and more. Cults combs through the terrifying details never explored in any of Parcast's series before. This is a passion project only made possible by you. So we truly hope you'll enjoy it. Visit parcast.com slash cults to pre-order your copy of Cults, Inside the World's Most Notorious Groups and Understanding the People Who Joined Them. Due to the graphic nature of this murder case, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes dramatizations and discussions of suicide, murder, assault, and gore. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. On November 1st, 1909, a group of eight men sprinted up the winding drive to Gorse Hall. It was bitterly cold that night in Staley Bridge, England, and pitch dark. They could hear a massive bell ringing out from the house at the top of the hill. Its alarm signaled a murder in progress. The chimes got louder as the mansion rose into their view. One man shouted orders, and the group split into two. Half of them waited on the porch while the others went around the side. Their hearts sank as they turned the corner to the backyard. The door to the kitchen was wide open. Even from a distance, they could see flashes of crimson spattered across the walls. Sprawled out on the kitchen floor, lying in a pool of his own blood, was the man they'd raced to save, George Harry Storrs. The man rushed to his side. His chest slowly heaved up and down. George was still alive, and his attacker had gotten away. This is Unsolved Murders, True Crime Stories, a Spotify original from ParCast. I'm your host, Carter Roy. And I'm your host, Wendy McKenzie. Every Tuesday, we dive into the world of a real unsolved murder and try to solve the case. You can find episodes of Unsolved Murders and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. This is our final episode on the murder of George Harry Storrs. Last week, we covered George's early life and the night he was attacked by a stranger in his own home. This week, we'll dive into the convoluted hunt for his killer. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. 
It was election night on November 1, 1909. While all of Staley Bridge was focused on politics, George Harry Storrs was living out his worst nightmare. The 49-year-old had been stabbed 15 times. A group of townsmen circled around him trying to help. George had no idea who they were and strained to understand their shouting. Listen to me. Stay with me. Where's the telephone? Where's Mrs. Storrs? Where's my wife? We need to split up. The criminal could still be around somewhere. Where is Maggie? Easy, George. We'll find her. Do you know who did this to you? I I think it was... Go go on, then. Can you give us his name? I I don't know. A few of these men would later say they saw a flash of recognition in George's eyes. It looked like he knew who the attacker was, but he seemed to keep it to himself as he cried out for his wife. The group broke into pairs and searched the home for Maggie's stores. They moved carefully. The attacker could still be lurking around any corner. They finally found Maggie in the attic. She was still clinging to the red tassel attached to the bell. One of the men guided Maggie downstairs to see her dying husband. He was now laying on a couch, completely unconscious. Maggie took one look at the gory scene and fainted. The townspeople kept searching the home for the attacker, but to no avail. It looked like he'd escaped. A few minutes later, the police arrived, but they were too late to save George Harry Storrs. Shortly after 10 o'clock that night, he was pronounced dead. The officers sprang into action to catch his killer. First, they rushed to quarter off the train station. They were on the lookout for anyone who seemed eager to get out of town. More officers arrived at the scene, Police slowly put together a picture of the struggle that unfolded just an hour before. The fight started several rooms away. So how did they end up in the kitchen? One way or another, someone was chased or dragged. The key is to follow the blood. Don't disregard a single drop. Each one will tell you a story. See here. Blood on the handle of the pantry door. Somehow, stores must have gained the upper hand and trapped the intruder inside. A desperate attempt to stall for time. Guess he should have accounted for the pantry window. The bugger could have shattered the window and crawled out onto the lawn. But then he'd need to re-enter the house, wouldn't he? Precisely. A man has to be after more than money to put up that kind of fight. He must have really wanted George dead. After the initial inspection, police, medical personnel, and witnesses crowded into the mansion, and their careless feet tracked blood into every room. The doctors were a touch more professional. They cleared everyone else from the kitchen and cut George's clothes off to examine his injuries. Most of the stab wounds were on his chest and back. There was also a large gash on his nose and another on his left hand. Clearly, the middle-aged businessman hadn't gone down without a fight. His cause of death was some combination of shock and blood loss. With that established, they next had to find the man responsible. Police began their search by interviewing the eyewitnesses. At least three people had seen the assailant. 
Maggie Storrs had probably gotten the closest look at him, but she was so grief-stricken that she couldn't give a detailed description. Luckily, George's niece, Marion Lindley, had a clear picture of the intruder in her head. The cook remembered him, too. According to them, the stranger was slender and of average height, somewhere between five foot six and five foot eight. He had fair hair and spoke with a plain English accent. He wore a dark tweed suit and carried a knife and a revolver. In her rush to the attic, Maggie had stolen his gun and hidden it under the rug. Later, a gunsmith examined the weapon and was baffled by what he found. Fascinating. You don't see these often. American bullock. It was made in America, then? No, definitely a European model. Probably Belgium. These things are made special for the army. And it... Wait. This thing has been tampered with. It can't fire a bullet. Might as well be in a prop shop. It's useless. What do you mean? See here. The swivel pin was removed. With all the dust in the bullet chambers, I'd say this thing hadn't been fired for at least three months. How easy is it to dismantle a weapon like that? Ah, Not easy at all. I'd say you're looking for a military man. Someone who really knows their way around a revolver. With this discovery in mind, the police started to build their profile. The killer most likely had a background in the army and he'd probably been lurking around the property for some time. He seemed to know the layout well, and just happened to strike on the one night when police weren't nearby. But they wrestled with the intruder's possible motive. At first, they thought it was a simple robbery. But that didn't explain the killer's choice to re-enter the home and murder George so brutally. The gruesome scene looked more like a crime of passion. George was an odd man, but as far as the police knew, he didn't have enemies. But clearly, someone was angry enough to kill him. Investigators compiled a list of possibilities, starting with George's family members. Mr. Storrs, is there anyone you can think of with a reason to come after your brother? Well, after that first break-in in September, we thought the assailant was a disgruntled employee of some sort. I remember asking him if any workmen from the factories or mills were violent. He rattled off a few names, but insisted that they were on good terms. We simply couldn't think of any other explanation. What about relatives? Any family disputes we should be aware of? None I was privy to. He's in good standing with everyone in the family. Uh, There's one cousin he doesn't talk to much. A bit of a black sheep, that one. We haven't spoken to him since our aunt died. What's this cousin's name? Cornelius Howard. He lives nearby, uh, over in Huddersfield. Without much else to go on, police looked into George's cousin, Cornelius Howard. They were surprised to see that Cornelius had a long criminal record. He'd been in and out of jail multiple times, mostly for burglary cases. Adding to their intrigue, Cornelius had served in the Army until 1909. For nearly two weeks, the police put all their resources into tracking Cornelius down. And on November 17, 1909, they finally found him. And he matched the witness's description to a T. Coming up, we'll cover Cornelius's arrest 
and his connection to his cousin's murder. Listeners, I have a very special announcement. Parcast is releasing its first book on July 12th, and you can help us celebrate. It's called Cults, Inside the World's Most Notorious Groups and Understanding the People Who Joined Them. And you can pre-order it today at parcast.com slash cults. This book was written for the fans, so to commemorate its launch, Parcast will be throwing some exclusive in-person and online events featuring popular true crime hosts such as Ashley Flowers from Crime Junkie, Christine and M from And That's Why We Drink, and more. Just visit parcast.com slash cults for event dates, locations, and how to sign up. See your favorite true crime authors and podcasters discuss the cults book and have a chance to participate in live Q&As. These events have limited space, so don't miss out. RSVP today. None of this would be possible without your support, so we truly hope you'll join us. Pre-order your copy of Cults and sign up for upcoming events at parcast.com slash cults. And now, back to our story. Tensions were high on November 17, 1909. Papers across England reported on the murder of George Harry Storrs, and the police felt tremendous pressure to find the man responsible. The next break in their case would appear in Oldham, a city just a few miles north of Staleybridge. A constable walked his morning rounds when he stopped to appreciate the snow-covered landscape. But then he noticed something odd. A thick layer of snow covered a wall that stood beside him. Two hand-shaped indents pressed into the snow, like someone had climbed it when they heard him coming. The constable peered over. Sure enough, a man was crouching on the other side. He was a young man, maybe 28. Fair hair stuck out from his dark cap. When he rose to his feet, the officer could see he stood about five foot seven. You there! Climb back over this wall and stand where I could see you. What's your name, lad? Uh, John. John? Ward. John Ward. John Ward, is it? What's the matter? Can't remember your own name? Uh, Apologies, officer. Uh, Still waking up, I suppose. And what business keeps you creeping around in the dark, John Ward? Just enjoying the morning air, officer. Well then, you won't mind the walk to the station. The man did as he was told and followed the officer. But the moment he got to the station, he dropped the act and confessed. His name wasn't John Ward. It was Cornelius Howard. Cornelius was marshaled into an interrogation room and shown the warrant for his arrest. He shrugged and insisted he had nothing to do with the murder. The officers had a hard time believing this, though. They started peppering him with questions. Mind explaining how you got these cuts along your leg? Where? Oh, I got those from a window. Is that right? Yeah, I was helping install one at the lodging house in Huddersfield. I dropped it and the thing shattered over my thigh. You sure it wasn't from crawling out of a broken window? Like I said, I I was trying to help the landlord out. No good deed, am I right, boys? Huddersfield, is it? That's right. 
So you don't make it down to Staley Bridge often then? Only when passing through. I grew up there. Uh, but it's not a place I think of as home. I've outgrown it, you know. Sure. Just out of curiosity, when was the last time you saw your cousin, George Storrs? He lives in Staley Bridge, doesn't he? Mm, earlier this year. I passed him in the square, but I don't think he recognized me. You didn't speak to him? No. Why not? Ah, nothing to say. My mother was the only thing we had in common. With her gone, I don't think either one of us saw much point in pretending we were close. Even though Cornelius seemed confident in his innocence, the investigators were skeptical. They knew he would be familiar with Gorse Hall, and they wondered if his family connection could contribute to a motive. Maybe he felt entitled to some of George's wealth, or felt cheated out of an inheritance. Cornelius also matched the descriptions given by Marion Lindley and the cook. But there was only one way to know if he really looked like the intruder. The police called Marion and the cook into the station, along with Maggie Storrs. They showed them a line of fair-haired, clean-shaven men. One by one, the suspects repeated the line. Now I've got you. Maggie Storrs stared at the men and hesitated. She pointed to a man next to Cornelius, saying he looked familiar. When investigators pushed her for more information, she fainted. Marion was brought in next. She pointed to Cornelius almost immediately, according to the officers. That's him. That's the man. You're certain? I would swear to it in the highest court. That's all we need. Thank you, Miss Lindley. Bring in the cook. Well? Well, I suppose that man looks most like him, though I could have sworn the intruder was shorter. The cook pointed to Cornelius, but seemed reluctant. Ultimately, Marion's swift identification was enough for the investigators. 31-year-old Cornelius Howard was charged with the willful murder of George Harry Storrs. Months passed, and on March 3rd, 1910, Cornelius Howard went on trial. Headlines across Europe reported on the Gorse Hall mystery. The people of Staley Bridge were eager to feel safe in their homes again. A crowd pushed through the courtroom doors at 10 o'clock in the morning. Reporters and spectators alike elbowed for a better view of the witness box. The room fell silent as Cornelius took the stand. You gave a statement to the police regarding the cuts found on your leg. A statement you now claim to be untrue. Is that right? Mm-hmm, that's right. And why is that? I thought I'd be in trouble if I said how I really got them. How did you really get them, then? I was breaking into a warehouse, okay? Stealing something. I've already been busted a couple of times, didn't want to make things worse for myself. Very well. Where were you on the night of your cousin's murder? I was playing dominoes with a couple of chaps up at the Ringo Bells pub. We were there until the bar closed. And these men could testify to your whereabouts? Y yes, sir. They're here today for that very purpose. 
Cornelius was right. Several men testified to seeing him at 10 p.m. on the night of November 1st. This confirmed his alibi and completely shattered the prosecution's case. The defense rested and waited for the jury's verdict. They only took 20 minutes to come to a decision. Not guilty. There simply wasn't enough evidence to believe that Cornelius committed the murder. And in the jury's eyes, it looked like police rushed to arrest him just because he was the only member of George's family with a criminal background. Maggie and Marion were shocked by the ruling. It felt like they would never get closure in George's death. They thought it was time to move out of Gorse Hall, back to Maggie's hometown of Silverdale. And they left all the furniture behind, as if they wanted no reminders of the old house. The people of Staley Bridge started visiting and eventually stripped everything from the home, all the way down to the doorknobs. For several months, the empty mansion was left to rot. In the summer of 1910, Gorse Hall was demolished entirely. The place remained abandoned until one night in June of 1910, when a young couple decided to visit the nearby quarry. They had a romantic evening together and started home around 10 o'clock. As they walked, they saw a strange man standing in the road. They quickened their pace to pass him, but suddenly the stranger charged, a knife shone in his left hand. The pair dashed for their lives, barely getting away. Within minutes, they ran into a patrolling constable, and their description sounded oddly familiar. I knew there was something odd about him the minute I saw him. It was the way he looked at us as he passed. He was younger, maybe 28 or so, slender with fair hair. Can you recall what he was wearing? A dark suit of some sort and a hat. He just turned around and charged at us. His eyes were wild. I'll never forget them. The constables had been at a complete loss ever since Cornelius Howard's trial. But the couple's account made it sound like the killer might still be hanging around his old stomping grounds. The similarities in the description, location, and weapon couldn't be ignored. The police tracked down a witness who'd been in the area the night of the couple's attack. He recognized the attacker as a local man named Mark Wilde. Investigators wasted no time digging into this man's history. As it turned out, Mark had recently returned to Staley Bridge after being discharged from the Army in January of 1909. Since then, he'd been holding down a job working on the railways until he unexpectedly quit on September 10, 1909. Police underlined this date in their notes. It was the same night as the first break-in at Gorse Hall. Coming up, we'll cover the second trial in George's murder and why Mark Wilde may have been the killer after all. And now, back to our story. In June of 1910, the search for George Harry Storr's murderer finally regained momentum. Staley Bridge police were on the lookout for 28-year-old Mark Wilde after he allegedly attacked two people near Gorse Hall. The investigators had a feeling that this wasn't his first gruesome act in the area. 
Mark was still living at home with his mother. They just sat down to dinner when the police showed up to ask a few questions. Do you own any weapons, Mr. Wilde? Sure I do. Man's got a right to defend himself. Knives? A few pocket knives, yeah. Family heirlooms from my granddad. How about a revolver? Used to have a couple. Don't have them any longer. And why would that be? My mom was always nagging me about having them in the house. When I read about all the fuss over who killed the rich man on the hill, I thought it was best to get rid of him. Gorse Hall was top of mind for you then, was it? Did you think you'd become a suspect or something? Just about everyone was a suspect for a while, weren't they? You chaps were stopping every bloke within 60 kilometers of here. I didn't want the trouble. Fascinating. While Mark was eating, police spied a bit of blood on his sleeve. They asked him if he'd been wearing these clothes on the night the couple was accosted. He said yes. But Mark insisted that the bloodstain wasn't from a knife attack. He claimed he'd been in a fight outside of a pub in Ashton. But the police didn't believe this story. They took him to the station immediately. The couple was called in a few hours later and asked to identify their attacker in a lineup. They didn't hesitate to point at Mark Wilde. He was arrested and charged with attempted murder, but the police felt certain that he was also responsible for the attack at Gorse Hall. With Mark in custody, they interrogated him further. All right, let's get right to the point. Where were you on the night of November the 1st? Uh, election night, wasn't it? Guess I must have been at a pub. The same one you claim to be at on the night of the June attack? I don't get smart with me, officer. No, I went to several clubs that night. Don't remember them exactly. Probably the usual Staley Bridge suspects. Fair enough. And you said you owned two revolvers that you got rid of them after George Harry Storrs' murder. What did you do with them? Took them apart. Scattered bits around town. What would make you do something like that? I knew that you chaps were crawling around looking for anything connected to the whole Gorse Hall incident. I worried that if you found the revolvers, you'd think I had something to do with it. And did you? No. I've never met the man. Needless to say, the police doubted his story. Mark's explanation of dismantling and scattering the revolver was highly suspicious. The case against Mark Wilde only grew more solid when his alibi proved useless. No one could confirm his story. But the most convincing piece of evidence was the revolver. The intruder had left a modified American Bullock at Gorse Hall. This type of gun was only available to servicemen like Mark. Investigators tracked down some of his old army pals. They confirmed that Mark owned an American Bullock and said that he was proficient at taking the gun apart and putting it back together. That meant he was capable of modifying it. At some point in the investigation, Mark Wilde was trotted out in front of Marion Lindley and the cook. Both of them said he looked just like the intruder. This identification, combined with the revolver, convinced the police that they'd found their man. Mark Wilde was charged with the murder of George Harry Storrs. On October 22, 1910, nearly a year after the murder, a second trial began. 
The prosecution argued that the unprovoked attack on the couple proved that Mark was capable of impulsive violence. They also pointed out the use of a knife in both attacks and told the jury about Mark's connections to the revolver left at the scene. Still, a feeling of deja vu pervaded the courtroom, and the defense took full advantage of it. They pointed out that two of the witnesses had been there before, testifying against a completely different suspect. Mrs. Lindley, do you see the man who murdered your uncle sitting in this courtroom today? Yes, he's right there. Are you certain? Absolutely. As certain as you were when you identified Cornelius Howard? Objection, Your Honor. Leading the witness. It's true. I had been certain it was Cornelius. But it was dark that night, and the two men resemble each other quite a lot. Now I see clearly. I know that is the man who murdered my uncle. I suppose we'll just have to take your word for it. No further questions. The defense continued to imply that Marion and the cook were untrustworthy throughout the trial. Because the women had been convinced of Cornelius Howard's guilt, their testimony was seen as weak. In one particularly dramatic display, Cornelius Howard was brought back to the courtroom to stand side by side with Mark Wilde. As it turned out, the two men barely resembled each other. This seemed to bolster the defense's argument that the women's identification was useless. Ultimately, the defense strategy was successful. Mark Wilde was acquitted despite all the evidence against him. After Mark was released, the investigation stalled. Soon enough, the case went completely cold. Many historians believe that Mark would have been convicted if he'd been tried first. The evidence against him was compelling, and he was only let go because the defense discredited a few witnesses. More than a century later, all that remains of Gorse Hall is a crumbling foundation and a brass plaque dedicated to the mystery. A few other theories about the case have surfaced, though. One particularly interesting one involved George's longtime friend, Robert Inez. Two years before George died, a few people thought he was having an affair with a young woman named Maria Hole, who worked for Inez. The 23-year-old Swiss woman lived in Inez's home and tutored his children, so her path crossed with George's frequently. Shortly after this alleged affair began, Maria took her own life. Many speculated that she was pregnant with George's child. The rumors go on to suggest that someone from Maria's family killed George to avenge her. As interesting as it sounds, this theory isn't backed up by any real evidence. It seems unlikely that Maria's family would be able to orchestrate an international murder without raising suspicion. Others theorize that George's wife discovered the affair and arranged the murder herself. But even though their marriage was a bit frigid, there's a lot of evidence that George and Maggie Storrs cared for each other deeply. And Maggie was paralyzed by grief after George's murder. Unless she was a remarkably good actress, it seems unlikely that she planned it herself. Besides, she had theories of her own. She believed Mark Wilde was responsible and even provided a motive that was never addressed in court. 
Maggie later revealed that Mark was romantically involved with a woman who worked at one of George's mills. Just four months before the murder in the summer of 1909, George fired this woman. This forced her to move away from Staley Bridge and her lover. Maggie was certain that Mark Wilde killed George as revenge for taking this woman away from him. In a more recent theory from author Barry Sullivan, he suggested the murderer might be a young man by the name of Alfred Derrick. Derrick was convicted of strangling his girlfriend in Staley Bridge in 1910. Sullivan pointed out that he matches the description provided by Marion and the others. He suggests Derrick broke into Gorse Hall intending to rob it, but things went south when Maggie ran at him with the walking stick. This theory, while interesting, still lacks a convincing motive. The stabbing feels too personal to be coming from a complete stranger. George was clearly aware that someone wanted him dead. The men who found him that night seemed convinced he knew the attacker but wouldn't say his name. The death of George Harry Storrs was almost certainly an act of passionate vengeance, but we may never know who exactly was responsible. Thanks again for tuning into Unsolved Murders. We'll be back next Tuesday with a new episode. For more information on the Gorse Hall mystery, amongst the many sources we used, we found the stabbing of George Harry Storrs by Jonathan Goodman extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Unsolved Murders and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. If we live till next time. Unsolved Murders True Crime Stories is a Spotify original from ParCast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Michael Langsner, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, Joshua Kern, and Travis Clark. This episode of Unsolved Murders was written by Ellie Margulis, edited by Kylie Harrington and Giles Hofseth, fact-checked by Cheyenne Lopez, and researched by Mickey Taylor. The amazing cast of voice actors includes Joe Hernandez, Brian Kim McCormick, Melissa Medina, Ellie Schiff, Rebecca Thomas, and Laith Walshlager. Unsolved Murder stars Wendy McKenzie and Carter Roy. Hi, listeners. It's Vanessa. Exciting news. ParCast's first book, Cults, Inside the World's Most Notorious Groups and Understanding the People Who Joined Them, is now available for pre-order at parcast.com cults. Thanks to your support, we've compiled years of research, insights, and a catalog of case studies to expose more about these cults and the people behind them than ever before. Details which haven't even been explored in our Cults podcast. Visit parcast.com cults to pre-order your copy of Cults, Inside the World's Most Notorious Groups and Understanding the People Who Joined Them.